Well, here at Grace Church, the way we put it, our motto is Grace Church exists to make disciples by God's grace for His glory. Now, that's not just some sort of ditty that we came up with. It lines up with Scripture. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all five have great commission passages, all of them. I know I've said this on many occasions, but it's worth repeating again. There's reasons why we just don't keep you under the water in the baptismal tank, bring you back up. You've got work to do. We all have work to do, and that is making disciples. Now, disciples of Jesus do not come to Christ all the same way. The Lord is much too creative. We're going to see in this passage today, the first two heard a preacher named John, and they followed Christ. The third person was brought to Christ by his brother, Andrew. The fourth one seems to be directly called by Christ, which is not typical in the age in which we live. And then the last one was told of Christ by a friend. Now, when you consider your own life scenario, when did the Lord bring you to himself? Um, For me, at age six, my brother spoke with me about Christ. I'm not certain I believe then. At age 14, my mom and I were sitting at a vineyard parking lot, and I had more questions about Jesus, and she explained a little bit more, and maybe I believe then. And yet, I don't know Uh, Age 21 was perhaps the first time that I came face to face with all the scripture says about repentance. And as you know, when the Lord saves you, he gives you the two different sides of the coin, faith and repentance, trusting in Christ alone, but realizing what a wicked sinner you are and only God could save you. So, and yet you might like Ruth Bell Graham who would say, I don't know what time the sun rose this morning, but I know it's shining on me now. So we don't worry about what were the times exactly we trust the Lord has done it. But point is this, we are all called to be disciples and we are all called to make disciples. If you're wondering, well, what does that word mean? In the Greek, it means learner or pupil. Uh, It's it's basically a, a follower of Christ where we are always learning about him. When do we stop learning about the Lord? Never. Even throughout the ages into the ages, we will be finding more and more and more about this great God that we serve. So we're looking at that today, and we'll call this Friends Introduce Friends to Jesus. This is what we do. If we're not doing that, then we're not following the New Testament paradigm. Now, before we go into John, and you just read the passage, it's worthwhile to note Uh, that Mark 1, verse 16 through 20, actually seems to have another rendition of how Jesus called at least James and John and Peter and Andrew. So if you would, keep your finger there, and let's look at Mark chapter 1, verse 16 through 20. And we will see that there is definitely a difference, and I will explain that. Mark 1, 16 through 20, this is the word of God. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he, meaning Jesus, saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. 
And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat and the hired servants and followed him. Now look up here. You've read this, you've heard this, perhaps you've even heard sermons on it, and you said, look, when Jesus calls, you drop everything and follow him. Well, uh, that's... That's true, and yet I'll make the point that this is not the first time they met Jesus. Actually, what you have here, and it says this on the notes, is in in the book of John, what we're going to see is really the conversion of the disciples, that they, for the first time, become followers of Jesus. But if you will, when you take a look at Mark and also Matthew and Luke, you'll see when Jesus calls these men, he's calling them to service, not just as, as disciples, but as apostles, full-time ministering alongside with him. So even though it might make for a really good sermon point that, look, they drop everything and follow Jesus, it's not the first time they met him. They know him. They've met him. When do they first meet him? Well, at least we see Andrew first meets him in John 1. I might make a little bit later an argument that James and John may have known Jesus way back. They may have actually been cousins with him. We'll talk about that later. But we're going to see when Jesus first meets them, at least a few of them. Join with me, would you? Verse 35 through 37 of John chapter 1. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus, and he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. So why does John say that phrase about Jesus again? I mean, didn't he just say this in John 1, 29? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And now he's saying, behold, the Lamb of God. He's saying it again. Well, there's, there's two points I'd make for that. Number one, believers, we need to remember this. You need to keep repeating the gospel to people over and over and over again. Keep seeking to introduce them to the King of Kings. Why? Why can't you just say it once? Well, because you're speaking to dead people. According to Romans 3, all of us, before Christ should save us, we are dead in our transgressions and sins. Dead people can't walk, can't talk. Dead people can't come to Christ. They're, they're dead. Okay, does this make sense? This is not that hard. But I know for a fact that what certain professors do at seminary, and I think they're wise to do so when they teach evangelism classes, the first time they meet out at the graveyard, And they'll say, okay, now let's go preach the gospel and win some converts. The the folks will say, what are you doing? Our professor has lost his mind. No, no. You go speak to dead people because that's what you're doing, spiritually speaking, when you talk to people about the Lord Jesus Christ. They're dead in their transgressions and sins. If the Lord in his mercy and kindness should have them be born again and gives them faith and repentance, that's his work. Jonah will say in chapter 2, verse 10, salvation is of the Lord. Now, does that mean we should sit back and on our lazy river of life and just don't talk to people about Jesus? No, no, no. The people that believe strongly in the sovereignty of God should be the most bold about talking to people about the Lord. Number one, because that's a command. But number two, we also know that only God can do this. So uh, you talk to people, talk to your friends, but they've rejected Christ. Well, you rejected Christ too at a particular time and place. 
So you keep talking to him. The second reason why is I think John is encouraging his disciples to become disciples of Jesus. It's like the first time he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And, and the disciples go, oh, well, that's interesting. And then John's going, behold the Lamb, like move. here. He's here, move on this. And that's what he seems to be doing. So verse 38 and 39, Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. This is the first time in the book of John where Jesus speaks in the gospel. I think it's interesting. He doesn't say, who are you seeking? He says, what? What are you seeking? It's interesting. He uses the same sort of language in Matthew 7, verse 7. Ask, it shall be given to you. Seek, and you will find. You see, by God's grace alone, they find salvation. And they look upon the Son of God, the creator of the universe. Do they realize that at the time? No, they don't. No, they don't. But Jesus says, what are you seeking? They're seeking salvation. As believers, even today, the question that the Lord asks us with every morning, what are you seeking? Are you, are you seeking your own kingdom? Or are you seeking to follow Matthew 6.33, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness? So I would ask you, congregation, this morning, what are you seeking? I think Christ is hitting on something here. And they will look at him and they will say, Rabbi. Rabbi is, is an honorary title students gave teachers. It doesn't actually mean teacher. It refers to a person being a teacher, but really what it means is um, my, my great one. My great one. I've tried to get Rebecca to refer to me as that, but <laughs> she's not there yet. My great one. Uh, why? Because that's how strong the people believe the word of God. You're actually teaching the oracles of God and the students would want to hear and they wouldn't just call you teacher, they would call you rabbi. What's interesting is they don't actually answer Christ's question when he says, what are you seeking? Instead, they answer his question with a question and their question reveals Jesus, uh, reveals their answer. They say, where are you staying? In the Greek, where are you Minnowing, where are you remaining? When Jesus says, abide in me, it's that Greek word minnow. And they, interestingly enough, use that same term. Where are you remaining? Where are you staying? You see, what's going on here is they want to be with this man. John the Baptist was something else, but this guy is the one that, that John has been speaking of. They want to be with them. And what happens is that it's not said in the text, but it's clear due to the, it being the 10th hour, as we'll see, they stay the night with him because that's what a believer wants to do. They want to stay with Christ. They want to be with him. And, and it's interesting, the, the reverse also is, takes place. Mark 3.14, it says, Christ appointed 12 whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him. That's a noted difference. If you're wondering, that's one of the noted differences between a believer and an unbeliever. A believer wants to be with Christ. Now, be clear here. 
Because even unbelievers will say, yeah, I look forward to dying and being with Jesus. No, no, no. How can you be with Jesus today? The word, the word and in prayer. That's the way God gives us ways to, to be with the Lord, to hear from him in his word, to speak to him through the spirit. There was a story, Dr. Johnson, I've mentioned him before, S. Lewis Johnson, Believer's Chapel, also former Dallas Seminary professor. He would say, there's a story about Voltaire. Voltaire was a noted agnostic. He was one day walking in Paris with a friend when a religious procession passed. And in the procession, a crucifix was being carried. And as it passed by, Voltaire tipped his hat at the crucifix. And his friend looked at him amazed and said, have you too found God? And Voltaire is supposed to have replied a little bitterly and sadly stating, we salute, but we do not speak. Listen, ladies and gentlemen, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you want to be with Jesus. That's why you have in 1 Peter where he'll say, long for the pure milk of the word that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. I'm not saying we want to be in the word and prayer all the time. And I, I regret how often I skip times with the Lord. But overall, the bent of a believer, he wants to be with the Lord. He wants to learn from him. So they ask, where are you staying? And then they go there. What's interesting, it says, it was about the 10th hour. Well, that's not a phrase that we would normally use. So you have to question, what system of, of reckoning time is this? Because there's a couple of different ways of doing it at that time. Uh, the Roman way of reckoning time would be, well, time kind of starts at midnight. So if it's 10th hour, it's 10 a.m. Uh, the Jewish standard starts at 6 a.m. So that would put it at, y'all are better than this, I'm sure, 4 p.m., 4 p.m. So which one is it? Well, John 19, 14 helps us. There was a time of preparation of the Sabbath, and it said it was the sixth hour. Well, if you were going with the Roman time, it would be 6 a.m. That's not when they started to prepare for the Sabbath. Sabbath began in the evening. So uh, the Jewish system would say the preparation would be high noon. So all that being said, it was 4 p.m. John is speaking to us in the Jewish reckoning of time. And so because it was 4 p.m., they just stayed all evening with the Lord. I think it's interesting because whoever Andrew is with as we'll see, Andrew and another disciple, I think it's John. John never mentions his name in the book. Uh, he never forgot when he met Jesus. It was the 10th hour. He remembered that day. It was 4 p.m. when I first saw him as the Savior. Um, John Calvin would put it this way as comparative to John the Baptist and then Jesus. He says, when the sun appears, the dawn immediately disappears. Jesus is the sun, John the Baptist was just the dawn. When the day appears, the, the dawn is gone. And that's what happens with John the Baptist. From here on out, you really don't see him. As a matter of fact, some people will complain and say, everybody's going over to that guy. And the way John deals with it is fascinating, but we're not talking about it today. Verse 40 through 42, verse 40 through 42. One of the two had heard John speak and followed Jesus it was, it was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. 
He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You should be called Cephas, which means Peter. Here for the first time, we have a name, Andrew. Andrew is a Greek name and it means manly. So if you've got that name, be impressed. Andrew and this other person, which we don't know his name. It doesn't say in the text, but I'm of the belief and many are as well that it's John the Apostle. We see Andrew then brought his brother Simon to Jesus. When you see Andrew walking around, you'll see him bringing uh, people to Jesus. Uh, when they, uh, Jesus is feeding the 500, 5,000 rather, uh, he brings in a boy. Andrew brings a boy, five loaves and two fishes. And the first person that Andrew tells about the Messiah is his brother Simon. The greatest act, I would say, the greatest act of kindness you can show a person, what is it? Talk to him about the giver of life, Jesus Christ. Evangelism explosion, we, I went through that years ago and I thought it was a great quote. What is evangelism really? For some people here that have not, not talked with anybody about Christ, you're just like, I get confused and I just can't think of the right things to say. I love what... Uh, D. James Kennedy would say, evangelism is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find the bread. That's what it comes down to. Why don't we do this? Can I provoke you a little bit this morning? We know we're gonna die someday. We'll know we'll stand before Christ, but we know that the Lord isn't going to be impressed with any goodness we do, but only, only the goodness of the Son, Jesus Christ. But he does tell us, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts, Make disciples. Go make disciples. We do many other things, but why don't, why don't we engage in this as much as we should? I think there's several reasons. One might be just fear of man, just rejection. You don't want to run the risk. I find that oftentimes people are more willing to talk about Jesus than we are, which is fascinating. Sometimes it could be just busyness. How many times do we find ourselves just busy doing other things? Sometimes it's just laziness or indolence. To quote Calvin again, he said, woe to our indolence if we do not, after having been fully enlightened, endeavor to make others partakers of the same grace. Why are we the beggar that doesn't share where the bread is? Aren't you glad somebody shared with you where it was? I digress. He says, we have found the Messiah. Now, Andrew would have known at least some of the hundreds of prophecies about the Messiah in the Old Testament. Everyone knew he would be of the kingly tribe of Judah, born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem. Perhaps Andrew even asked Jesus some of these questions. We don't know. But Peter looks at, or rather, Jesus looks at Simon, and he says, Simon, son of John. And some of you said, well, you might remember your other uh, gospels and say, I thought it was Simon Barjona. Which one is it? Well, Barjona, it's bar is is a Hebrew word for, for son. Bar mitzvah, son of the commandment is what a person becomes, a young 12-year-old boy. Here we have Barjona. Peter's, or rather Simon Peter's father's name was Jonah, but in the Greek you could abbreviate it to John. So, Simon, son of John, who is Simon? Simon, the name was coming from the second-born son of Jacob and Leah from Genesis 29. You want to read a story that makes you cry, read the story of Leah. 
unloved wife that she was. And the Lord gave her sons. And with every son, Leah thought, ah, my husband will love me now. And it's just, it's, it's grieving. She has a son named Reuben. And Reuben means, look, a son. And then she has uh, Simon. And Simon, it sounds like the Hebrew word Shema, which means here. And she says, the Lord has heard that my, my husband hates me. And then she has a son named Levi, which means attachment. And she says, maybe my husband will be attached to me now. And then she has a son named Judah. And you know what, why she names him that? It means praise. I will praise the Lord. Isn't that the way we should be? At the end of the day, stop trying to find our adequacy in our spouse, in our kids, in our job, in our money, in our retirement. Now, I would love to say it ended well for Leah, but later on she has a couple of other sons and you'll have to read up on them because she's still trying to find attachment to her husband and never really does. Simon, though, this Simon of the New Testament is actually a lot like the old Simon of the uh, second-born son of Jacob and Leah. Uh, Simon of the Old Testament and New Testament, rash and impulsive, In Genesis 34, something horrible happens to Simon's sister, Dinah, and she's raped. Jacob does essentially nothing, whereas Simeon and Levi decide to, you have to read the story, but basically they kill every man man in the town. Simon is rash and he's impulsive. In the New Testament, Simon is rash and impulsive. Uh, And so Jesus renames him right there on the spot. We're going to call you in the Aramaic, it's Cephas, or we would say Cephas, and it means rock. Uh, the Greek word is Petros, which means rock. Uh, note, this is very important. It really is. His name is not Petra, which, meaning, which means boulder or cliff, but it's Petros. Why is that so important? Well, when you get to Matthew 16, 18, and Jesus looks at Peter and says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. For the English reader, you might look at that and go, wow, I never considered that, but Peter was the foundation that the church was built upon. That's bad exegesis. That's really bad. Jesus Christ is the foundation. Well, but don't, aren't both words rock? Yes, in the English they are. It's like this. Jesus is saying, I tell you, you are rock, and on this rock I will build my church. But in the Greek, he's using two different terms. He says, I tell you, you are rock, you are Petros, and on this Petra I will build my church. What is Jesus saying? Well, most commentators, I think they're right. They're either referring to the confession that Peter just said. What did Peter just say? What's the context? When Jesus says, who do people say that I am? Some will say Elijah, other John the Baptist, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And then Simon Peter steps up and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And what does Jesus do? He slaps him on the back and said, I knew you'd get it together. No, he doesn't say that. He says, this flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And then he tells him, and on this confession... Or perhaps Jesus is saying, on the the rock of Jesus Christ, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Once again, 
This is a side note for theological purposes, but it's a vitally important one. As Protestants, we have never held that Peter is the rock that Christ built his church upon. The rock is Jesus Christ, or it's the confession that Jesus is the Christ. So, continuing on, Peter was never the boulder. He was never the Petra. But Jesus did call him Petros, Cephas, rock. Peter is many things in the gospel, but let's be honest. Do you ever think he's such a rock in the gospels? No, he's impulsive, he's unreliable. Why does Jesus name him this? Well, I would say this, it's not what Peter was, but what he would become only by the grace and power of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the same God who called Abram later on called him Abraham. And by the way, as a side note, can you imagine Abraham introducing himself? Uh, Well, I used to be called Abram, but the Lord now calls me Abraham, which means father of many nations. And then people would say, really? Well, well, show me your kids. I don't have any kids. (laughs) And yet the point I'm getting at is the application is God will make you that which you are not. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, we are a new creation in Christ Jesus. The old is gone, the new has come. At the end of Peter's life, he's getting crucified upside down. Don't tell me that guy is not a rock. And yet that was only because of the grace and power of our Lord Jesus Christ. I heard a quote my wife just shared with me yesterday. I liked it. The first Adam gave creation names. The last Adam gives new creations, new names. You know, it's interesting as well. Jesus does not ask Simon, hey, can I change your name? He never asks him. He doesn't ask Peter afterwards, hey, do you like your new name? No, you see, it's an issue of authority. It's actually an issue of dominion. The Lord Jesus Christ is in charge of you today. You need to realize that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and somehow you think that you're still in charge, you're not. Let me go further. You never were. Proverbs 20, 24 says, a man's steps are directed by the Lord. How then can anyone understand his own way? The Lord is in charge of you. And by the way, thank him for that. You know how badly you would be messing things up? The Lord is in charge and he calls you out and he brings you to himself. And that's what he does with Simon. And he says, we're calling you, Peter. You're gonna be a rock. Verse 43 and 44. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Bethsaida locally... It was considered part of the district of Galilee, although it was on the east side of the Jordan River. The very, very Gentile area. As a matter of fact, Andrew and Philip are both Gentile names. They're not Jewish names. Uh, why is Jesus set on going to Galilee? Did you see that in verse 43? The next day he decided to go to Galilee. Well, he's got a wedding to go to. And it's a two-day walk to Cana, as we'll see in John 2. And so he just flat out calls Philip. Philip, the name means lover of horses. Um, And when Jesus says, follow me, did you see how he explained himself? He didn't. He didn't. He, He may have. There might be more in the text that we don't have right here. But just like Abraham who followed, not knowing where the Lord was taking him, so too Philip, so too you and me today. 
I love Corey Ten Boom. She has just a fascinating story. She never signed up to be in the Holocaust. She lost a sister and a father and a brother. Um, it, a lot of people don't know this, though. She, she ended her life, uh, rather, she didn't end her life. She, she died in the state of California. How did she find her way over there? Well, she had opportunities to share with others about the incredible forgiveness of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness that she had to show others that the Lord gave her. Um, and she lived an exciting yet an unnerving life. And that's certainly true of us as well. She told Chuck Swindoll one time when she was out in California, she said, hold everything in your hands lightly. Otherwise it hurts when God has to pry your fingers open. And I see some of you shaking your head because you know what I speak of. It's hard when the Lord's will and yours are juxtaposed. So you hold them lightly and you say, Lord, not my will, yours be done. So Philip follows by the Lord's grace. In verse 45 and 46, he finds Nathanael. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the, in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, come and see, which is interesting. That's Almost the same phrase that Jesus gave Andrew and perhaps John. Where are you staying? Come and you will see. You see, that is our role as believers in Jesus Christ, is in telling the world, come and see. Come and see. And so we find out Nathaniel, his name means God has given. God has given. Nathaniel is traditionally identified with another guy named Bartholomew. When you see the list of the apostles, uh, those names seem to switch out. And that could very well be correct because the Aramaic term Bartholomew, it's Bartolome, Bar meaning son, son of Ptolemy. So you could have that nickname, son of Ptolemy or Nathaniel. And, and he tells them, he goes, we have found... This guy, the Messiah, and he's written about in Moses in the law. It's interesting. Most messianic information is not found in the first five books of the Bible. They're mostly written in the Psalms and the prophets is where it speak most of the coming Messiah. Moses doesn't write much about the Messiah, but he does mention Genesis 3.15, where the first, what they call the proto-evangelium, the first gospel goes out to Adam and Eve. And what do they find out? You're kicked out of the garden. You're gonna die, die. And yet the Lord provides them clothing and he shows them perhaps a picture of what would come in the future, that someone's gonna have to die for you. And he says in Genesis 3.15 that one day the seed of the woman will destroy the seed of Satan. And that seed of the woman was Jesus Christ. Uh, also, Deuteronomy 18, verse 15 through 18, Moses writes about the prophet who is to come, and he says, and you will listen to him. It, it may have been a prophecy, or he might be imploring them, you better listen to this prophet. He's unlike any other. But most of the messianic uh, phrases, all found in the Psalms and the prophets. And so they refer, he refers to him as the son of Joseph. Son of Joseph, he only knew you see, the way people would refer to folks back at that time would be who their father was. We still have these terms, even in the English. Have you ever met uh, someone who is a son of John, a Johnson? I bet you have. 
or perhaps um, son of Peter, Peterson. And as I was studying this last night, I had an epiphany. Of course, my brother-in-law's family, Anders' son, which is really Andrew's son. So of course, it fits. So they thought he was son of Joseph, if only they knew this is the son of God. And they would soon, but not today. Nathaniel's comment, I think, is interesting, though. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Wow. It's kind of harsh language, is it not? You know, keep in mind, though, he's from the town of Cana. Cana is located in the district of Galilee. Nazareth is also a town in the district of Galilee. Perhaps there was a rivalry. Uh, I think more likely that uh, people of Jerusalem were kind of the top dogs socially. They looked upon the people of Galilee as the backwater district. And then the people of Galilee looked upon Nazareth as kind of the backwater water for them. I know for me, I'm, you know, raised in Dallas, can't help that. And you would think as a kid, can anything good come out of Fort Worth? It's just what you ask. That's okay. They look at folks from Dallas the same way. So it's just different. Um, what's interesting is what happens next, what Jesus says to him. Verse 47 and 48, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, first off, this phrase, behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Psalm 32, 2 says, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Uh, now, to be clear, Christ is not saying Nathaniel is without sin. But he says, Nathaniel, you are not a deceitful man. And boy, do we need more of them. This, this term deceit in the Greek, it, it's translated as bait, B-A-I-T. It's bait for catching fish. That's the way a deceitful person is. He uses bait in order to deceive. Bait and switch, that's a deceitful person. Question, who in the Old Testament is known as the quintessential deceiver? Jacob. I mean, Abraham lies, Isaac lies, but Jacob, he bests them all. Jacob is a deceiver. As a matter of fact, even from the time of his birth, he's grabbing his brother's heel. He's coming behind his brother in the womb. And he was called a heel grabber, which is, is a deceitful person. They come behind you. They, don't, they, don't, they, they go around you and they deceive you. And so even after he has stolen uh, Esau's blessing, Esau will say in chapter 27 of Genesis, isn't he rightly named Jacob? He has deceived me these two times. He's a deceiver. And then God changes his name to Israel, he who strives with God, which is interesting because in the Hebrew, it really can be translated the, the man who sees God, Ishrael, the man who sees God, and he strives with God. What is the point in this? Why am I telling you all this? Because Nathaniel, though an Israelite, doesn't look like Jacob. Are you catching this? Jacob, it means deceiver. And so Jesus looks at him and goes, behold, an Israelite in whom there is no Jacob. 
He doesn't look like old Jacob. He looks like the one who wrestled with God and God changed him, not to perfection, but he, was, he stopped doing as much as his deceiving ways. And then Philip says, how do you know me? So obviously he, he knew something like this guy's calling me out. And he says, before, before Philip called you, when you were in the fig tree, I saw you. Now, is there any significance to a fig tree? Um, well, Zechariah 3.10, that's kind of a picture of the messianic blessing where you will invite your neighbor to come and sit underneath the vine and the fig tree. Point is, if you had a vine, if you had a fig tree, you've got, you've got some prosperity going on. But for Philip, or rather did Nathaniel, maybe he just liked to pray and meditate underneath the fig tree. I've got a fig tree in back. It used to be huge until we had the huge snow problem a couple of years ago and it, it whittled it down. It's much smaller now, but it still is fast growing and it provides really great shade. And so perhaps that's where Nathaniel was praying and meditating. And I think what we're gonna see is what he was actually meditating on in the next few verses. Verse 49 through 51, Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you. Now, we don't catch this in the English, but in the Greek, it's very clear. He uses the plural. He's just not looking at Nathaniel now. He goes, truly, I, truly, truly, I say to you, y'all will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. So these titles that Nathaniel is using, first off, you are the son of God. Now, if we were to use that phrase today, we'd better be referring to the Lord Jesus Christ or that would be blasphemy. But at that time, that title does not necessarily always refer to God in Nathaniel's day. Rather, he sees Jesus as having characteristics of God. In Matthew 5, 9, Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. So he means it as really high, but it, rather he's, do you think he's really seeing Jesus as divinity right at that time? I don't think so. I think the Lord has not revealed that yet. But he says, you are the son of God. You're the king of Israel. What about that phrase? Well, if you say you're the king of Israel, that is a messianic title. This is the Messiah. And so it seems like Jesus points to all of the men who are following him, perhaps James, John, Peter, Andrew, Philip, Nathaniel, and he says, y'all will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. Now you go, that's a really strange phrase. Oh, not if you're doing your um, yearly Bible read. This is Genesis 28. Genesis 28. What we have is the Lord um, is working on Jacob uh, Jacob has just deceived, though, his father. He's got the blessing, and he takes off for Padanaram, which is his mother's, uh, basically her family. But as he goes, he, he is waiting. He's hearing about his brother who wants to kill him. Esau says, I'm going to kill this guy. And so he's taking off. Uh, and then at night, he takes a rock. And it's interesting in the Hebrew, it's hard to tell if he, if he puts that rock underneath his head or if it's over his head. He may have put a huge boulder right next to him so that he doesn't get, you know, he can kind of hear 
Esau or perhaps be protected from Esau. And that night he has a dream and you have something called Jacob's ladder. It really think more of like an escalator, um, if you will, because the term can be described as a stairway and you have angels coming from God down to earth and then going right back up. And it says in the Hebrew text, it said God was up above and he spoke to him. Actually, the Hebrew can also read God stood by him. I kind of think it's the latter, is that God is standing right there over, over Jacob. And he, what is he telling him? He's telling him, you're going to go away and all this land belongs to you. I'm going to bring you back home. And he tells him that you've got the covenant. And what does Jacob do in response? He's such a businessman and the worst kind. And he says, well, if you bring me back here, I'll give you 10%. You know, he's working this deal with God. and Crazy. But at the very end, he says, the end of, after the dream, he says, the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. I didn't know it. And you can't help but wonder if Nathaniel is actually studying Genesis 28 and Jesus is quoting that passage. And perhaps Nathaniel doesn't even know it, that God is in this place and he has just called him by name. It's important to know what, when event, what event this happened in Jesus' ministry where angels would be ascending and descending. It's hard to tell. Maybe it was when Jesus was in the garden at Gethsemane or when the Lord spoke to him at times. We don't know. But we do know this is every Jew honored Jacob. He's the father of the 12 tribes. But here before Nathanael is not Jacob, it's the new Israel. Jesus Christ, the one who strives with God, who sees God, who explains God. Indeed, Jesus is the ladder, the ladder from God to man. And Jesus finally concludes with saying, he will be angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. We'll conclude with this. Jesus' favorite designation of himself, Son of Man. 13 times it's used in John. Why does he use that phrase? Why doesn't he say, I'm the Messiah? Well, Messiah had so much political garbage trapped into the terminology that it meant you're going to kick Rome out. And that was never the plan in the first coming. Instead, it's son of man, which comes straight from Daniel 7. Go ahead and throw that up there. Verse 13 through 14 because we're going to see this much in this book. He says, I saw in the night visions, Daniel said, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. He came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. What's happening is the Lord... Uh, God, the Father, is giving dominion to the Son, and he's handing it over to him. And Jesus Christ is going to continue to refer to himself as the Son of Man. The, his enemies will not like him for it, as you can imagine, because it's showing sort of a divine person here, and rightly so. Conclude about friends introducing your friends to Jesus. I like the title of a book, it's called One Thing You Can't Do in Heaven. It's interesting. We're going to be doing so many awesome things in heaven, but one thing we can't do in heaven is talk to people about the Lord Jesus Christ who are unbelievers. This is the only life we have for that. Now, just to be clear, you're not 
seen as godly in God's sight because you do or you do not witness. You are godly in God's sight simply because the shed blood of Jesus Christ alone. However, he actually does tell us several times, make disciples, make disciples. I was convicted about this on the other day when I was working on a vacuum cleaner and I called the repairman who's over in Europe somewhere. And um, so he was helpful, but I didn't, I'm not that uh, helpful myself in the areas of tools. I wasn't able to get it fixed. And so I said, listen, I really, I really appreciate your help. And he said, listen, is there anything else I can do for you? Anything. And I just felt this conviction like, and I said, well, yeah, actually you can. You've been helpful for me. I'd like to be helpful for you. He said, okay. I said, can I ask you a couple of questions before I get off the line? Sure. It was late in the day. It was fine. I said, okay. We all die someday. You think when you die, you go to heaven? He said, I don't, I don't know. That's a good question. I said, well, if you were to stand before God and he were to say, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? And he said, I, you know, I don't know. I don't, I don't really believe in heaven or hell, but I'm a good person. Listen, when you get that answer from an unbeliever, that's a bear trap. It just, it really is. Because you, you need to be able to love him enough and do it in a gracious way to be able to point out, actually, he is a sinner. So I went through a few of the commandments. You ever lied before? Yes. What do you call someone who lies? Liar. Have you ever stolen something before, even something small? Yes. What does that make you? A thief. How about this one? This got me. If you look at a woman with lust been adultery with her in your heart, Jesus says. Have you ever done that? Well, well, yeah, yeah, I guess I have. And I said, okay, I'm not judging you here, but by your very words, you're a lying, thieving, adulterer at heart. And I know you don't believe in heaven or hell, but suppose there is a heaven. Suppose you actually do stand before God one day. Do you think you'd be innocent or guilty? And then it, by God's grace alone, he was convicted and he said, man, I would be guilty. But, but I'm not saying I really believe in this. I said, okay, what am I getting to as I speaking to him is Romans 2. Folks, every person out there has a conscience. We're born with it. We can sear it. We can harden it. But the fact is you can't get away from conscience, even though it's not perfect. It's a warning system, even for unbelievers. And I said, at the very end of the day, what are you going to do with sin? And I was, by God's grace, able to go through the gospel. The wages of sin is death. You're going to die, and you're going to go to hell for eternity. And I said, and I care for you. That's why I'm sharing this with you. But you know what? God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus lived the perfect life you and I can never live. He's a historical figure. And one day he gave himself up for death and uh, three days later, God rose him from the dead after being crucified. And there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to the men by which you must be saved. I said, man, come to believe in Christ today. And he said, I just don't believe. And I said, well, Romans 14, no, actually not Romans 14, Proverbs 14, 12, it says, makes it clear that a man, he can think his way is right, but in the end, it leads to death. I said, ultimately is this, come and see. Have you got a, have you got a, a Bible? Why don't you read the book of John? Why don't you just check out the claims of Jesus Christ? Come and see. If you've never come to that place, my encouragement to you is the same thing. Come and see. Don't put it off. Today might be your day of death, your homegoing. And if you are in Christ today, hey, follow the New Testament pattern. Talk to people about Jesus Christ. God has put you here on purpose. Where you live, where you work, 
and do it for his glory, never for yours. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you so much for your kindness in showing us this pattern. Lord, I pray that you would help us, that we would live lives that would seek the Lord in his kingdom. We wouldn't be worried about what our friends think, what our neighbors think, but ultimately, Father, life is fast and we are all on the stage of life and we're going to be called off one at a time. So Father, we do wanna pray that by your grace alone that you would give us the wisdom and give us the right words to say and ultimately that you would save. Thank you, Lord, so much that you saved us. For those that are in Christ, we give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen.